wanted to say just a, a brief word about uh, Psalm 98. Um, at the beginning of it, it says, uh, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. Uh, his right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. So most of the time when we think of, we think of the, uh, the idea of righteousness, we think of some type of moral quality uh, that God himself possesses that maybe he can give to us or something so that we'll be morally upright. And, uh, but that's not, what his, that's not what righteousness typically is. And, it, and if, you, if you look at, well, within this psalm, he, he says he has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Whatever righteousness is, it has to do with the way that God relates to the nations. And if you, if you read Romans in this light, you'll see, like at the beginning of Romans, it says, um, the righteousness of God has been revealed from heaven. Right? The righteousness of God has been revealed. What does that mean? It means that God has found a way to keep his promise. Right? His promise was to incorporate the nations into the covenant, and he has figured out a way to do it, right? And that is his righteousness, his faithfulness to his covenant promises. I think, in, in you see this language a lot in the Psalms, and that's the reason I mention it. When you, when you read the Psalms and when you see this term righteousness, it's a very vague term to us. We often think of it purely in moral terms, and it is moral in the sense that God is faithful, right? And that's a moral thing. But, but the, the sense of it is that it means that he is, he's going to do what he said he was going to do, right? And that's, that's really his righteousness. Uh, you see this also in, uh, in Isaiah as well. It's, um, it's a major theme of, of Isaiah, especially 40 through 66, where he's, what, what Isaiah is exploring is how is God going to be faithful to his promises? Basically what Paul is exploring as well in Romans, how is he going to be faithful to his promises if his people that he's chosen through whom to be faithful are unfaithful. Right? That's a real problem. And that's what, that's what second, the second part of Isaiah deals with, and then that's what then we deal with in, in Romans. That's what Paul's dealing with. All right, so we're going to be in, in the book of Mark this morning, and we're going to be looking uh, at Mark chapter 13. Uh, I'm going to divide it into two parts. Uh, we're going to look today, well, it's hard to, it doesn't divide very easily into, into portions, but we're going to look at the first 13 verses today, and then we'll look at 14 through, I think, 27 uh, next week. Uh, and I want to read, I'll read uh, 1 through 13 to you. I was going to read the whole thing, but it would, it would take a very long time. I would encourage you, though, to uh, to over the following over the next week to go back to say chapter 11 read 11 12 and then 13 to get a sense of where mark is going because one of the one of the well the the errors in in interpretation relating to this particular chapter has been to just pull it right out of mark and say what does it mean hanging hanging here by itself but if you look at it within the context of mark we will see that it is actually about the destruction of the temple. It's not about the second coming of Jesus, um, as much as um, our commentators will say that. I don't think it is, and I'm, I'm going to attempt to show uh, why that cannot be the case. Um, part, of the, part of the problem, and I'll say this again later, is that we as Gentiles don't, we don't understand the importance or the centrality of the temple. And so for us, the temple means very little. But for the first century Jew, the, the temple was basically, well, it was that place where heaven and earth were joined. You think of it that way. Uh, we've been looking in, in Genesis at the original, at, at creation at the beginning. Creation at the beginning was, was designed as a temple. The world was designed as a temple for which uh, for God to dwell in. And then what we have from there on out is this reestablishing of a place for, for, the, for God to come and dwell among his people. 
And that's what we see in the temple. The temple is that place where heaven and earth, which were separated at the beginning in Genesis, it's that place where heaven and earth are going to be joined together again. They're going to be joined uh, together again there in the temple. Okay, And so for the first century Jew, if that temple is demolished, what does that mean in terms of our relationship with the God who has made promises? What's going on? And, and so this is, this is uh, something that is going to be uh, really shocking to the audience. And it is, uh, but it is, we'll see this week, I will, I'm going to try to work through the first, first half of it. Next week, I hope to bring kind of the full importance of, of this passage to bear uh, as we get to the second part. The second part, as we'll see, has a lot of what we call apocalyptic language in it. And this apocalyptic language has been the source of a lot of confusion over, uh, well, over the history of interpretation. All right, so let's pray, and then we're going to, we'll start with uh, Mark chapter 13 and read 1 through 13. Our Father, uh, we are thankful for uh, this day, this uh, time. We are thankful, Father, that uh, you have given us the gift of thankfulness. Uh, we pray that uh, you would uh, make us ever more so, uh, that we might uh, come to know the joy of the Lord and uh, that we might uh, rejoice in all things. Father, I thank you for uh, your word. I pray, Father, that you would be among us in our midst uh, and uh, that you would help us as we seek to uh, read this text. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will, all these, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are to be accomplished? Note there, there's nothing about when will these things be. He's talk, there's nothing about the end of time, okay? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Now, we're going to see that uh, this, this notion of the end has often led to um, us thinking that somehow he's talking about the end of time, but we're going we're gonna to come back and, and look at that. The end is not yet. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pangs. We must ask the beginning of what and the end of what? These are the questions that, um, that require our attention. But be on guard, he says, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by, my, by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end, there it is again, to the end, will be saved or delivered. And once, once again, we must ask, the end of what? Today we're going to be looking at the beginning of a passage that has been frequently misunderstood. So much so that you will probably think, I have misunderstood it. And that's possible. It is possible, and I don't think it is, but I, uh, but I am actually open, I really am open to uh, seeing it differently. 
Uh, I used to think in much the same way, and there's a long history of interpretation which sees this passage as basically predicting the end of the world and, and the end of time. I don't think that's the case, though. Traditionally, it has been understood basically in one way with two different spinoffs. Number one, either Jesus is talking about and predicting the end of time, right? This is the most common uh, understanding of the passage, uh, but it's just been delayed, right? So he knew when he spoke it that he's talking about the end of time, but, um, and they thought it was going to come, he, uh, you know, he thought it was going to come pretty quickly on that generation, but it's been extended so far. This is the most common understanding of, of this passage, and also it's parallel in Matthew 24. The other option, and one that uh, is unacceptable for those with a high view of scripture, is that Jesus was predicting the end of time, but he missed it. And Mark and, and the church uh, who preserved Mark's gospel, they just missed it. They were wrong about the timing. But, oh, well, hey, it's going to happen out, in the, out there somewhere, and so we're going to be okay. But uh, I think both of these interpretations are, quite simply, wrong. And the, the error, it seems to me, stems from, from several corners. First, these readings fail to understand the apocalyptic language within these texts, and they, they then apply it, uh, they apply it in a way that is, uh, that, that they should not uh, apply it in relation to the text in the Old Testament from which they are drawn. So we're going to just spend some time going back and looking at uh, the places from which these, these allusions are pulled, and we'll see what they're doing in that text, and we'll see how Mark is actually bringing that, that context back into uh, into his gospel. So in, in reading them uh, in reading them this way, they tend to distort the, the actual language. So for example, uh, an example is, is that um, it says all these things later on in the second part, it says these things must take place, uh, take place within this generation. Jesus said to them specifically, this is going to happen within a generation. You who are standing here are going to experience this. Was he lying, right? Was he, was he just, did he just think so maybe and, and then he missed it? Or, or was he actually saying these things are going to happen in this generation? I think he, he, he nailed it, right? He said these are going to happen in this generation and they actually did. It's how we understand this that, that then will be uh, key to uh, an accurate interpretation. Okay, so we'll see some of this this week, but most of this apocalyptic language is in uh, verses 14 and following, which we'll come to. Secondly, uh, the reason that these have been under misunderstood is that both variations fail to understand the context of this chapter within the context of Mark, and this is going to be, I think, uh, probably most important. We're going to spend a lot of time on this uh, this week. For the last, and I'm going to come back, I'm going to go back to chapter 11 and kind of get a run and go at, at chapter 13, which is where we are now, to kind of set the stage for what he's going to say here in chapter 13. Recall that in chapter 11, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem and receives the welcome of a king, the first place he goes when arriving in Jerusalem is where? to the temple. He goes to the temple. There, Mark says, he looks around at all things. That's all he says. It's kind of quite cryptic. As though he is scoping it out for uh, the way that he will enact its overthrow, right? So this is what he's doing, I think. He's coming into, he's coming into the temple. He's looking around. He's scoping it out, and he's making the entrance of a king and he's going to scope out how he is going to symbolically enact the overthrow of the temple. On the next day, when he, <coughs> when he was hungry, he saw a fig tree afar off, having leaves. When he came to it, he found that there was no fruit on the fig tree. He immediately pronounces a curse upon the fig tree and says, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And in the next verse, Mark's, Mark describes Jesus as entering into the temple again and driving out those who bought and sold in the temple 
overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, a ceasing of operations of sorts. And this would be a preview of coming attractions. In doing so, he also taught them, Mark says, saying, Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of thieves? Everyone is astonished at his teaching, and the scribes and the chief priests sought how they might destroy him. Upon exiting the temple in the evening when he went out of the city, the next morning, as they passed by the fig tree, it had dried up from the roots. You see what Mark has done? He has sandwiched, he's sandwiched this overturning of the tables, this cursing of the temple, right within the, the weary, uh, the, um, uh, the drying up of the fig tree. So he comes and curses the fig tree, goes into the temple, curses it, comes back out, and the fig tree is withered. He is enacting the overthrow of the temple in this little parable. And he, he does this intentionally. That's chapter 11. Once again, all about the temple and its coming desolation. Here taught through symbolic action, as, as Jesus has been doing throughout Mark. Chapter 12. Jesus tells a parable about a vineyard taken from the song in Isaiah 5 that Isaiah sang against Israel. In that song, in Isaiah, and also in this one, he speaks, he speaks of a vineyard with a wine vat and a tower. With the vat and the tower symbolizing, you guessed it, if you have a vineyard and you have a tower in the middle of it and you, you're thinking of, in terms of Israel and something in the middle of it, you're thinking in terms of the temple as the tower in the midst of Israel. The, the vat... There's a wine vat at the end of the temple, and there is a tower in the midst of the land. This is the vineyard of Israel, and then he goes into a faraway country. Okay, so he, he leases this vineyard out to, to others. They're supposed to produce fruit. These vine dressers, he decides he wants some fruit, uh, and this is the owner of the vineyard, decides he wants some fruit, so he sends some servants. And they all, they, they're all treated very badly. Some were beaten and, and others were killed. Then he said, I'll send my son and they will honor the son. But what do they do? They said, we will kill the son and we will take the inheritance. Here again, just as with the fig tree, there is no fruit. Just as we saw in chapter 4 as well with the sowing of seeds and then the producing of fruit. He is looking for fruit. He comes looking for fruit, but he doesn't find any. What does the Lord do when he doesn't find fruit? He curses it. This is why, like in John chapter, John chapter 15, those that bear fruit, what does he do? He prunes them. But those that do not bear fruit, these branches that don't bear fruit, snaps them off, throws them into the fire, snaps them off, throws them into the fire, snaps them off. This is what he does. He's always looking for fruit. And what he's saying within this context is that Israel is a vineyard that does not pr produce fruit, and the temple, the tower in the midst of it, is the, is the major representative symbol within it that symbolizes the very life of Israel that is not producing fruit. What will he do? The ones to whom the owner leased out the vineyard will be destroyed, and he will give the vineyard to others. He then ends this story in chapter 12 with the following quote from Psalm 118, 22 and 23, which is itself the interpretation of the parable. Now, that's interesting. He quotes from the psalm in order to interpret the parable that he's just given. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous. It is marvelous in our eyes. What does it tell us? This parable, as everything else in the previous chapter, has been about the temple and its ready demise. 
Through the enactment of fig tree cursings and parables about vineyards, Jesus is telling the people, and Mark is telling his readers, the days of the temple are numbered. And when it comes to an end, remember the word end that we saw throughout, the old order symbolized by the temple itself will give way to the new age. That destruction, as we will see more closely next week, will be the sign that the temple has been replaced by another temple, built through the rejection of the stone by the builders. That destruction will be the sign. That destruction of the temple is the sign that that temple has been replaced by another temple, built through the rejection of the stone by the builders. This is why he says the, the, uh, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief of the corner. In other words, that, that one will be done away with and a new temple will be constructed. Not a physical temple, it's that temple made, uh, made without hands. It is that final eschatological temple not made with hands that Jesus is claiming that, he, that God is about to build through Jesus' rejection. This is what is marvelous in our eyes. Not just the rejection, but the rejection and the building of the new temple through the rejection of the stone. In, uh, this is just a, uh, it's an interesting note. In the, the language that is used here, the word for a stone is evan, and it's, eb, it's like ben, but evan. And you've, you've heard the name evan. Right? Evan is the, it means a stone. That's what it means. And so if you're reading this in Aramaic, you say the, the evan has been rejected. And, uh, but if you think about who Jesus is, he is the, the ben Adam. He's the son of man. There's a, there's a play on words here, and if you, if you were to hear this, and I'm not saying it was written in Aramaic, but, but these, these words were probably said in Aramaic. Here he is the son of man, he's the ben Adam, and the Evan is going to be, going to be rejected. This seems to be what's going on in, in the book of, of Daniel itself. Uh, there's this play on, on the stone in chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2, which is going to crush the image and it's going to create in the world this new temple. This is the stone of Daniel chapter 2. It crushes the image made with hands there and, and, and here representing various kingdoms allied um, against the kingdom of God. It is that stone, again in Daniel 2, that became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And what is the interpretation there in Daniel 2 regarding this stone? He says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, Daniel chapter 2, and it shall stand forever. Keep in mind that word end because I think he's drawing this uh, from Daniel. Now, I realize that was not real clear, so let me, let me tell you where I'm going with this. In our current passage in Mark chapter 12, he says, he ends this parable. He says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. What he's saying there is that there's a stone that when it is rejected, is through that rejection is actually going to become a new part of the temple. God is going to build a new temple and the rejection is going to constitute the, the beginning of that building phase. Okay? So in in telling us this parable, he is alluding to Daniel chapter 2, where the, the, the stone that is cut out without hands actually becomes a mountain. It crushes the image. It becomes a mountain. It fills the whole earth. This is that, that temple that God is going to build in the last days. Right? And we know of that temple as, as the body, right? the body of Christ. This is actually the temple. So in this particular passage, he is saying, by using, this, by using this imagery of a stone, he is saying that God is bringing about his kingdom. That's what it means. It means the crushing of, of the image by the stone means that God is bringing about his temple. This is the context then for Mark chapter 13. Two whole chapters with nothing but temple and kingdom focus. 
we tend to forget this as we come into chapter 13 and we read it as a decontextualized whole. That the whole gospel of Mark has been about the kingdom of God coming upon this earth through the actions of Jesus is often neglected when we read this. Okay? But Mark doesn't simply tell us about the kingdom coming. Mysteriously, as the book nears its end, and beginning here in chapter 12, he begins to show us how Jesus' proclamation about himself and his symbolic actions are actually going to produce it. Then fully and finally, when he offers himself as the servant to be slain on behalf of the people, he is going to bring this to, uh, bring this to, a, to a head. The key obstacle, and this is going to be important for, for this particular passage, chapter 13, the key obstacle to the kingdom of God at this time is Jerusalem and its temple. Like Babylon in the past, now, ironically, it is Jerusalem and the temple that stand in the way of God's creating of the kingdom. All that it stands for will be replaced with a new Jerusalem and a new temple. Think of Galatians chapter 4. What does Paul say? This is a very odd passage in Galatians chapter 4 where he gives us allegory. He gives us allegory of, of Sarah and Hagar. And he says, we are not, we are not from Jerusalem below. She's not our mother. Jerusalem above is our mother. And we're free. It's just a very odd passage. But there seems to be this idea that there are two Jerusalems. There's the, the Jerusalem in the minds of those who, who believe, and she is free. And then there's this Jerusalem that is a slave to, uh, to the world, and she is below. And she is the father, of those who, uh, the father of those who are like Hagar under the law, he says. Uh, but this is the idea. Jerusalem and its temple and all that they stood for have become the enemies of the kingdom of God. We've seen that throughout. They are the ones who are standing in the way of the building of the kingdom. He says there, he says there in that passage that, that I just read that, um, at the end of 12, that he is uh, the, the chief priests, the chief priest and the, uh, and the Sadducees are, and the scribes are actually uniting to kill him. Right? Who are the chief priests? They're the ones who are over the temple. They run the temple. And they are standing in the way of the kingdom of God. Okay, which brings me to the third uh, reason that we have misunderstood Mark 13. The fall of Jerusalem and of the temple means very little, if anything, to us in terms of theological significance. That place of symbolism and Israel's hope for her nationalistic expectations means very little, if anything, to us. Theologically, we do not understand that the temple was the center of the world to the first century Jew, and even the modern one. Even today, what do people do when they go to Jerusalem? They go to the temple and they pray against the wall, right? What does any faithful Jew today do now? They pray toward Jerusalem. It's the center of the world. It's the very center of the world. There's likely no parallel in the Western world, but the fall of Jerusalem and her temp temple were so intricately tied to the life of everyone in Israel in the first century that its disillusion and destruction could only mean that a cataclysmic shaking of heaven and earth had occurred. And there is no language apart from apocalyptic language that can describe, as Mark and Jesus both use in the second half of this chapter, the destruction of the temple. There is no language that can be used apart from apocalyptic language that can describe the destruction of the temple. And this is the end that is spoken of here, the end of that world and all that it stood for. But through it, through it, something new would be born. And this is something that is often, often <coughs> overlooked. Something is going to be born out of this. Lest we get the wrong impression about what is happening here, it was not that the temple 
as given by God was a bad thing in and of itself. No, it is that temple, it, it is that the temple had become essentially a symbol of national righteousness and not of international welcome. It was not for the nations anymore. It was for Israel to hold herself up in and defend herself against the nations. As in Jeremiah's day, what were they doing in Jeremiah's day, chapter 7? They were going to the temple, insulating themselves from the, from the coming army and holding themselves up in the temple. And Jeremiah says, do not do it. The temple is a house of prayer for all the nations. Do not, do not make it into a nationalistic symbol where you go and hide yourself. But this is what they had done in Jesus' day as well. Put simply, Israel herself, led by her, her leaders who held control of her institutions, had failed in her vocation to be that city on a hill, the light of the world. It is not simply that Israel had sinned. It was so much more. They had rejected their office. They had rejected their role and all that the role entailed. They had rejected the fact that they were to be the servant of Yahweh to the nations. This is the tragic irony, as we shall see, that the language Jesus uses in his discourse is the language that was used to speak of Babylon in Isaiah and Jeremiah as being overthrown. Language designed to say that Jerusalem is the new Babylon, the enemies of God's people and kingdom, and like Babylon, she is going to be overthrown. Jerusalem's leadership, and thus most of her people, had rejected the way of peace and didn't recognize the time of their visitation, and now it was too late. She would experience utter destruction at the hands of an invading army. She had become, in fact, the enemy of the purposes of God. And like the image in Daniel 2, she stood as an image to be broken into pieces before the coming kingdom of God, which was being born. According to what we've seen so far, God will keep his promises to bring about the kingdom of God through the rejection of the stone. And it is through this rejection of the stone, this time, uh, this time by Jerusalem herself, through her leaders and people, that we will see the rise of an unshakable kingdom, an unshakable temple, that will fill the whole earth. <clears throat> I, want to, I want to turn now uh, to Mark 13. I know it's taken a bit of time to, to work up to that. Um, and make the case that this, that we have in some ways read this wrongly, to make the case that this is not about the end of time. And secondly, and mostly next week, I want to demonstrate that this reading is actually full of theological significance for us when we read it this way. So if we look at, at Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, there are a couple of things that I want to point out there. So uh, <clears throat> there in Mark chapter 13, 1 through 4, he came out of the temple and one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, they had just come out of, of the temple itself. If you go to Jerusalem, the temple itself is this massive structure. It's like three or four Walmarts put together. It's huge. It's a massive structure. But, but built, around the, um, built around the temple um, are all of these, well, dwelling places, houses, um, rooms that, that have built on, been built onto the temple. And so this is what occasions uh, this, this question. So Jesus said to them, look, all these things are going to be torn down. Not one stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are to be accomplished? Okay, so he's just left the temple. His disciples, not understanding what he had been saying uh, cryptically about the temple in the previous couple of chapters, and its replacement. They begin to gawk at all these buildings, and, and like fans of it, they begin to marvel at the, at the astounding architecture. And it would have been. I mean, this is, this is a fabulous building. Herod had been building this temple since, uh, since, the four, since 4 BC. He had been building this temple. And so we're looking at 35 years or so of, of construction uh, on, 
on the temple itself that, that Herod, wanting to be the king of the Jews, um, had, had begun. It would have been astounding. But this occasions, and note that it's in private. Privately, in, in public, he's been speaking to them in parables. Right? Chapter 12, they, they realize that it was spoken against them, but still he's speaking in parables. But in private, he gives a more explicit explanation about what will happen to the temple. What follows here in private includes warnings and promises for the followers of Jesus who would be left without him very soon. These warnings and promises are surrounding the coming time of tumult and tribulation, convulsions like the world has never seen. Note from this introduction that the warnings and the promises that follow in some way are to serve as the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. Now, this would have very little relevance for us in terms of the actual happenings, but it has a lot of relevance for them because they're going to be working within this region, right? And so if this thing is about to, to implode, they need to know what's going to happen so that they can get out, not so that they can hold themselves up in the temple and defend it, but so that they can get out. This is what he means about deliverance. So these, these things that he, these warnings and promises that he gives are to serve as the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished. He says, uh, they say, tell us, when will all these things be and what will be the sign when all these are accomplished? Now, Matthew adds a little note here, a very interesting little note. He says, and of the end of the age. What is the sign of your parousia? which is a source of a lot of, of questioning. Uh, we'll get to that when we get to Matthew. But he also adds, and the sign of the end of the age. Now, recall that, that I've spoken uh, more than once about this present age and the age to come. As Jesus is basically saying, I'm inaugurating the age to come. Eternal life is, is going to come about when I am, uh, when I am crucified and when I'm, when I'm raised. Here, too, they want to know when the new age will dawn, or the sign, I would say, that the new age had already dawned, more precisely. Here they wanted to know about the sign of the end, that is, the end of the age. And thinking within the first century Jewish worldview, we're thinking of when is this present evil age coming to an end? When is the new age going to be inaugurated? And this is precisely what it's about. Now, before we, uh, briefly, I want to look uh, at uh, Zechariah 14. I want to just mention it, actually. Zechariah 14, uh, uh, you already have a, a long reading assignment, 11, 12, and 13. But um, over the next week, if you can have a look at Zechariah 14, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip over uh, some of it. But in Zechariah 14... It says there that uh, he's going to split the Mount of Olives, right? And the Mount of Olives is going to split off from the temple. And there's a lot of, a lot of interesting language there, but Zechariah 14 describes in strikingly similar language that day, and it's the day of the Lord, when the Lord will bring about a new and renewed temple and he will become king over all the nations. That is, he will bring in the kingdom of God. Uh, I'm not going to read it all, but you should have a look at Zechariah 14 in its entirety. Zechariah 14.1 says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other south, southward and so forth. And you shall flee. We'll see this next time is relevant, relevant for the second half of this. You shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. 
Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him, which also is reflecting uh, the end of Mark chapter 13 as well. Uh, we're going to look next week at what that coming actually means. On that day there will be no light, cold, or frost, and there, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord. Right? It's also reminiscent of Mark 13. Only the Lord knows this day, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. And on that day, and this is the temple imagery, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, those that come out of the temple, Half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in winter, in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. There's much that can be said here, and the whole final chapter of Zechariah should probably be read. Since at the end of Zechariah 14, there the merchants in the temple have been expelled. It says there quite specifically that there will be all the temple and its vessels will be holy to the Lord and there will be no merchant or Canaanite in the temple. They will have been expelled. It's sufficient though to note that in describing Jesus as sitting on the Mount of Olives, Mark is alluding to this text as a way to say in what Jesus is describing we will see Zechariah's prophecy come to fruition in a completely unexpected way. The new temple will indeed be built through this war on the nations. Now, Jesus gives four of his disciples warnings and promises. Here are the warnings. Do not be deceived by false messiahs, verses 5 and 6. Second warning. Do not be shaken when you hear of wars and rumors of wars. And then at the end of verse 8, he makes this statement, which I read over for years, just looked right over it entirely. For these are the beginnings of birth pangs. This statement is very easy to overlook, but in it we find the key that unlocks the whole passage. For those of us, of you who have experienced the birth process or watched it, we must ask ourselves, do birth pangs, do birth pangs precede nothing or something? Right? Do people just have them and then nothing occurs? Do women writhe in, writhe in pain only to bring forth air? Of course not. The birthing process brings forth a child. It is tempting, even within a historical reading that I'm proposing to read this chapter about simply being a prophecy of something coming in the future with that future event, in this case the destruction of the temple being the point of the prophecy. But the events themselves, Jesus says, while they are essential and important are themselves signs that something is being born. According to verse 9, these are but the beginnings of birth pangs. And this is the strange thing about this passage. We're not told explicitly what it is that is being born. But we can discern something of an answer when we read the rest of it within its context and in relation to the echoed passages. First, we can see from this text that what will happen will result in the deliverance of the disciples from the coming wrath. If the followers of Jesus will take heed to Jesus' words and remain faithful, he says, watch out for yourselves. You'll be delivered to councils, beaten in the synagogues, brought before kings and rulers for a testimony to them. By so doing, you'll proclaim the gospel to all nations. Don't worry about what you will speak. The Holy Spirit will give you the words in that hour. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, children against parents, etc. Echoing Micah chapter 7. You will be hated for my name's sake, etc. This is verses 9 through 12. And then finally, you will be delivered if you endure to the end. Now, we must ask ourselves, if the end is the end of time and the end of the world, what are they delivered to, right? But they will be delivered. What does Jesus say in this passage? But flee, get out. When you see certain things, get out of Jerusalem. What we can see here is that there is indeed an end that rushes forward, and those who remain faithful, who stay awake, 
will be saved literally and physically. They will be delivered. This is not simply about the souls of Jesus' followers being saved, but their actual deliverance from the coming destruction that might seize them as well, except for the warnings of Jesus. What he is saying here to the disciples is that there is no place for blind loyalty to inheritance, to the land or to the nation. You must flee. This is what he's been pointing to all along. In all of his talk about leaving old loyalties and families in this present age, about gaining new families and lands, etc., in the age to come, he has been pointing at this all along. Those who follow him have a new inheritance, a new land toward which to look, the new age that Jesus is inaugurating. There is no one who has left house, houses or brothers or sisters or mother or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life, he says in Mark, Mark chapter 10, 29 and 30. All along, he has been seeing what the future held would hold for his disciples. And when by his sacrificial action he would bring to a close the previous age and inaugurate the age to come, we would then see this time work out. The intermediate time between Jesus' sacrificial action and when the sign of what he had done would become evident would not be a time of ease and enjoyment. No, it would be a time of tumult like the world has never seen. But it would result in the deliverance of God's people, the new Zion, if they endure to the end. We back up for just a moment and look at the, the whole, the whole ch chapter. We have here at the beginning where he says, where he says, uh, these things are the beginning, beginnings of birth pangs. Something is going to be born. And as we've seen from the rest, of, the rest of Mark, it is the kingdom of God that is actually going to be born. What he says through this, though, is that this is going to be a time of tumult like the, Lord, like the world has never seen. But if you, the disciples, endure to the end, you yourselves will be delivered, physically delivered. Of course, it means spiritually as well, but... But here he is really, he really is dealing with this historical situation. What does this mean for us today? Though we enjoy a remarkable calm and freedom from persecution, we too must keep watch and remain vigilant lest we find ourselves swept away with the world. There is no guarantee that our current relative freedom will last. And there's a good indication that there are forces at work that will inflict punishment on those who do not think and act in a manner that pleases the mob. Young and old alike will likely, if you haven't already, have to choose between allegiance to Jesus and allegiance with the world. You will have to choose. This allegiance to the world will come in various guises. We too must pray for strength and wisdom in order that we too must, uh, might be able to stand in the day of testing and work to bring about the kingdom of God wherever we find ourselves. Today we live in a situation that is not hopeless. It's actually not hopeless. It's very hopeful, but it begins in our families. Fathers, mothers, we should be intentional in instilling within our children sound minds, biblically informed minds, not artificial systems of thought in the form of stifling theological systems. These won't work. Our children will cast them off. The world of scripture must become ours and we must learn to see what God is doing in our midst, realizing that while living in this present age, we who are in Christ are living within a different kingdom and we must teach this. We must teach this. This is so important for our living our lives. If we step back and, and view ourselves 
from the perspective of, of Scripture, which says the new age has been inaugurated and we're living in it. We're not living in the, in the, the present evil age. We're in it, but we're, we're of the new age. When we begin to think like that, it will absolutely transform our lives. And we will see that, that there is a set of actions that accompanies this present evil age. There's a set of thoughts that accompany it. And there's a, th there's a set of actions and thoughts that accompany the age to come. And we are to practice those actions and thoughts. Fathers and mothers, we must be intentional in instilling this within our children. The world of scripture must become ours and we must learn to see what God is doing in our midst. We must learn to see and show how the kingdom of God is a reality among us, confessing that we too see through a glass dimly and have not fully arrived. Some of you young men and women may not believe me, but there's a world that looks appealing and harmless, but it will devour you. All the while, it will make you think that you are a ruler in it. The point is, you have no choice but to join the battle, as Jesus' disciples had no choice. They would either suffer persecution with the people of God, be delivered to councils, be taken before the synagogues and beaten. You, too, have no choice but to join the battle. On one side or the other, if on the side of Jesus the king, you will likely feel at times as though you are on the wrong side. But herein is wisdom. There is a way that seems right to a man, a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. This passage, Mark 13, if it is any indication of the way things happen in general, it suggests that trials often precede deliverance and blessings, that birth pangs precede the birth of something good and living. As Jesus said to John the Baptist, who was about to lose his head for his testimony about Jesus, blessed is the one who is not offended in me. He bids us, too, to not be offended in him. Next week, we will look at the rest of this chapter and uh, hope to kind of tie it together. Uh, this, uh, it's, a, it's a difficult one to kind of pull together, but at the end, I, I hope that we'll see what Jesus is doing through this, through this language, is saying that his suffering is actually going to, um, is going to bring about the process by which the kingdom of God is born in this world. And once that has been accomplished, then, uh, then we go forth and, and essentially are witnesses for him. It is through this process of his death and resurrection that he is given authority over the whole world. And it is only then that we as his disciples then can be given authority to go out and bear witness to him. Amen. Thank you, bro. Please find your way. First Corinthians eleven twenty seven. That's